my heart's a bit raw. I won't do this at every service, you need to know. <laughs> but my heart's a bit raw this morning. Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, before that, Orlando. It's been quite a summer for the United States. Our teaching team was gathered Thursday night. We had a wonderful time sharing fellowship. Uh, thanks to the generosity of some folks in our community here. And uh, we, we had just come back inside and someone looked at their phone and they said there's been a, a shooting in Dallas. Policemen are dead. And uh, you just need to know, we couldn't sleep that night, many of us. There's no easy way to stand up here on a week such as this and begin. Uh, but I'd like to give you a little bit of historical and spiritual perspective regarding what's going on as a way of introducing a very important text chosen months ago that actually is in many ways perfect for today. There's a group that uh, I'm suspicious many of you have overlooked in the Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a tribe, it's a people group. They're called the Jebusites. And the Jebusites actually lived in the area that is now Jerusalem, historically, prior to Joshua coming in and conquering the land. They lived in, in Jerusalem, and they lived in the hill country just outside of Jerusalem. And if you ever do a study of the Jebusites in the Bible, you come to discover something interesting about the Jebusites. Uh, God had told Joshua in the book of Joshua to go in and conquer the land. And this is... Uh, though misappropriated for colonialism, this is a picture of God's desire for us uh, to, in the power of Christ, conquer the terrain of our own hearts, but more than that, uh, this is a picture of God's desire for us to be in our cities and in our nations, people of hope who address uh, systemic power structures that are oppressive and destructive. It's our calling. Read it, it's in Jeremiah 29, it's in Ephesians 6, it's all through the Bible. It's not enough to live good lives alone, taking care of our families, paying our bills, staying sober, staying faithful. We're called to actively move into uh, issues that are stealing shalom. And the Jebusites are representative of a stronghold that's, that's uh, so powerful, so threatening, so difficult that it's, it's not conquered for centuries. Joshua 15, 63, it says this, the sons of Judah did not conquer the Jebusites. Judges chapter 1, verse 21 says this, the sons of Je uh, Benjamin, later on, now we're in the book of Judges, did not conquer the Jebusites. Second, by the time you get to 2 Samuel, David is now king, so generations have gone by, and uh, David seeks to go toward what is now Jerusalem, and the Jebusites mock David, and they say, look, we could destroy you with our little finger, because everyone's been intimidated by this systemic power structure that refuses to allow peace, that's Jerusalem, to reign. Now, why do I share this this morning as an introduction rather than a cute story? I share this because in Ephesians chapter 6, 
you and I are told explicitly that we're not doing battle with flesh and blood. We're not doing battle with Democrats or Republicans or policemen or black African-Americans or, or whites. There's a power structure in play right now in our country so systemic and I would argue so ubiquitous that we've adapted <laughs> and we don't even notice it anymore. It's the structures of, of violence and racism all around us. And when David encountered the Jebusites and they said, our little finger is enough. David, this is David, he said, this ends now. This ends now. Enough. We're going in. So I wonder when we'll say that. I wonder when we'll say enough. Enough violence, enough racism, enough killing, enough passively allowing the principalities and power structures of this world to steal the shalom that God has called us to represent in our world. I wonder, I wonder how long it takes. I wonder how many more times there has to be a shooting. And so, I want you to know, we, as Bethany, will pray. We'll pray for justice, we'll pray for comfort for victims, we'll pray for wisdom, but we'll do more than pray. We're working now to structure conversations across racial divides that we want to host and participate with and people in our city. We hope to partner a little bit with Seattle Pacific University in doing the same. And Fuller Seminary. We'll learn. <laughs> Many of us for whom the issue has been remote, we'll learn, we'll lament, and we'll act. And my prayer is that we will be David in this moment, and that we will say enough, enough. And if we purpose to address any principality and power, if we purpose to address any, any uh, destructive power structure, whether it's personal or a family system or in a nation, any time you do that, the pattern that we see in this particular text this morning in Exodus 6, that pattern is real and present. And, and so, the text couldn't be more timely. My prayer is that at a personal level, this would be a day when some of you say enough. Enough uh, tolerating a, a stale marriage rather than intimacy because marriage matters in our culture. Enough tolerating a hidden addiction to pornography because freedom matters in our culture freedom from lust, enough tolerating greed and hyper-individualism and, and, and defining our lives by what we own, enough. And maybe at a family level, there are strongholds, and certainly I can tell you that at a city level, a national level, there are strongholds that we need to address. 
And once you purpose to address a stronghold, there's a pattern. Circumcision, confrontation, covenant. This is what we see with Moses in this text. Circumcision, Exodus chapter 6, excuse me, Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 to 26. And so we're going to begin there, and we're going to look at this, this pattern, because this pattern is the pattern that, that offers a template and encouragement, actually, to, the, to continue moving into being people of hope, even when such obedience leads to a more difficult life, as it often does. So, so we, we pick up this story here in Exodus chapter 4, and I'll just, I'll just tell you the outset. Let's, we'll read this, and I'll just tell you. I, this is one of the least preached on texts in the Bible, right? So listen, here's the, here's the deal. Moses on his way back to Egypt with his wife, with his son. It came out of the lodging place on the way. The Lord met Moses, sought to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, you're a, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. It's a, kind of a derogatory statement. So God let Moses alone because of circumcision. For whom in the room is this your favorite verse in the Bible? Anybody raise your hands. <laughs> right? Um, not only is it not our favorite verse, we don't even like to preach on it because we, we're like this. What on earth is going on? Well, here's the thing. What you need, you need to understand, and this is, a, this is important for everything I've... This frames everything I've already said. You need to understand that circumcision is a big deal in the Bible. See, it's a big deal. Big deal with God. God is explicit all the way back, Genesis chapter 17, verse 10 to 14. This is where the covenant of circumcision appears to Abraham. Abraham is 99 years old. He's already had a child uh, by sleeping with the maid named Hagar, giving birth to Ishmael. And, and so in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, God states positively, every male who is part of Israel must be circumcised, every one. And then he states it negatively as well in verse 14 where God says this, anyone who's not circumcised will be cut off from God's people. Now, so when God does this, and, he's, and you do this with your children, right, sometimes, not only do you tell them to do something, but you say, and by the way, and if you don't, boom, here's the consequence. That's this, right? So uh, it's not just, hey, it'd be nice if you cleaned the dishes. It's like, do the dishes, and if you don't, I will burn your room down. So now there's motivation, you see, in a sense. And so it's stated positively and negatively, and, and, and yet, you know, we're sitting here 3,000 years later, and we're like this, what's the big deal? Why is, why is God obsessed with circumcision? And here's why. And like, remember, again, in the context, Moses, 90, excuse me, Abraham is 99, and God says to Abraham, in, in one year, you'll have a child. So that means conception will happen within three months. And by the way, this is God talking now to Abraham. By the way, when you leave my office, go out, take a knife, and do the surgery on that piece that you so desperately need to impregnate your, your, your 89-year-old wife, right? And in this age today, uh, intercourse after circumcision is, a, is a, uh, uh, four weeks usually, is what I, I'm told, right? And that's, that's with a good knife, and, and antibiotics, and hospitals. And you're, by the way, you're not 99 usually. So when, Mo, do you understand, when Moses circumcised, and then three months later, Sarah 
says, hey, good news. I went to the drugstore and look, it's pink or whatever it is. Um, now, now, in this moment, understand with me who gets the glory for what has just happened. 100% this is God. This is not human strength. This is God's spirit. Not by strength, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how the work that lasts will be done. And it only happens through people whose heart is circumcised. That's why when Joshua goes in to conquer the city of Jericho, God says this to Joshua, wait, before you conquer the city, the first thing I want you to do, before you go in, I know the city's terrified right now. I know you could go and you could win immediately. But before you go in, this is what I want you to do. Circumcise the entire army. It's not military strategy in any book I've read. And yet, because the army is now uh, void, and I put it in parentheses because it's been metaphorical, void of human strength, now uh, when they sing and the walls collapse, God gets the glory. When Isaac is born, God gets the glory. Uh, when the walls fall down, God gets the glory. When David approaches Goliath, uh, David says aloud, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who comes to mock the people of God? And it's intended to be a derogatory, a derogatory statement when you call somebody uncircumcised, right? And we don't use that today as a derogatory statement appropriately. I think that we don't use it. And yet in the moment, what, what, here's what David is saying. And he says it directly later on to Goliath. He says, you come in human strength, but I come in the strength of the living God. And so I will take you down and cut off your head today that all the world may know that our God is a God of power. <laughs> our God's able to deliver. Our God's able to transform. Our God is able to bring shalom. Our God is able to do it. But here's the subtext. Our God is able to do it. We are not able to do it. Not with our best human efforts, ever. <laughs> so what does this have to do with us? Well, it's interpreted for us in Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 where we read this, in Christ you, that's we who are gathered here this morning, in Christ you're made complete and you have been circumcised. You've been circumcised. All of us in the room, male and female, a circumcision made without hands. And this is what God says, the removal of the body, the flesh. And flesh here is a theological term found in your, uh, in your NASB Bible. If you have an NIV, it might say sin nature or something like that. But, but what he's saying here is God is no longer acknowledging who you are apart from Christ. In other words, you had an old identity, now you have a new identity. In your old identity, it was your personality, it was your human assets, it was your strength, it was your charisma, it was, it was, it was your wealth, it was your, it was your Rolodex, it was your connectedness, it was your LinkedIn, it was your sphere of influence, and now God is saying, look, I'm, I, I understand all of that, but the work that will be done will not be done because of that. The work that will be done will be done because the resurrected Jesus is now living in you, giving you a strength you do not have apart from me. You are circumcised. I no longer recognize all your efforts to do great things for me. No longer. No, it's done. And God in his, in his wisdom won't allow us to prosper to the extent that we continue to depend on human plans and human strength and human identity to do the work of God. He just won't allow it. And I've told some of you this before, but it bears repeating. This is a lesson that we learn by seeing our efforts fail. <laughs> That's how we learn it. I was a youth pastor in Los Angeles. 
Uh, and I took the job because the previous youth pastor quit. And I said, how hard can this be? Naively, and began to do youth ministry. My wife and I did a retreat. The very first, the, the, very, the, the first thing we tried to do, I just thought, this is easy. I mean, youth ministry, right? I do a little rock climbing, play a little basketball. She plays guitar, done, right? People will cry and throw their sins in the fire and you know, hold hands and become devoted disciples. And none of, like, our first retreat, not only did none of that happen, but we're on a beach, and, and when the van doors opened, kids just scattered so that we build the fire, and there's, there are no youth. I mean, this is a youth retreat, and here's my wife and I with some marshmallows and, you know, Hershey bars or whatever, and we're singing, hoping that everyone will gather, and they don't gather. They don't even come back. As we go, we go find them, smoking in the bushes, making out in the bushes, swimming in front of a sign that says there's a riptide here. You, if you swim here, you will die. All, and this is, our, this is my first attempt at ministry, right? And I'll just, I'll just cut to the chase because at the end of the weekend, my wife and I, we get down, literally, I don't do this much. I remember we got down on our knees. And we said, God, we don't know what to do. We don't have a clue. And if I ever heard God speak, this was one of the moments when God said, Richard, you know, I've been waiting actually for like 23 years for you to say you don't know what to do. Thank you. Because now I can maybe begin to do through you what you've been trying to do for me. That's circumcision of heart. Are you there? <laughs> Tried to fix your marriage by putting verses on your husband's pillow? <laughs> Nagging? Manipulation? Try to make your kids love Jesus? Try to, try to solve racism in America through amazing initiatives? Look, the starting point is this. I'm empty. That's the starting point. I'm empty. And if we're going into our calling and our daily lives, depending on our human strength, we'll fall short every time. Why? Because God loves us too much to let us succeed in the strength of the flesh because the work that God wants to do is a work that ultimately will testify of God's power, not ours. God's strength, not ours. God faithfully thwarts my plans. And so, maybe you feel a little inadequate this morning, particularly in the wake of a week like this. If Lincoln and Rosa Parks and John Perkins and MLK haven't solved it, what can I do? But I have good news for you, friends. When we're in the space whereby we know that we're not enough, we're in a very good space. We're in a very good space. That's the starting point. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, when we, don't want you to be unaware, friends, when we were in Asia, it was so difficult, that, and here's Paul's phrase, we despaired even of life. This is the great Paul, who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Before he could ever say that, he, he first had to say this, I can't do what's expected of me. Every time I try, it's a disaster. That's 2 Corinthians 1. And Paul said, I had to go through this so that I could learn to not trust in my own strength, but to trust in God who raises the dead. And we know from Galatians chapter 5 that there will be this eternal battle between the flesh and the spirit in our lives. And God is not calling you to sin management, 
God is not calling you to do in the strength of your own feeble humanity what God alone wants to do, but neither is God calling you to disengagement into some private pietistic world whereby we develop for us a metric for success in the Christian life that says, you know what? I'm married, I'm happy, my debts are paid, I pay my taxes, I even tithe, I go to church, this is the Christian life. No. Not when there's Jebusites all around us that pop up in the form of shootings and homophobia and racism and violence. No. <laughs> so, overwhelmed? Good. That's circumcision. And then what happens? Well, Exodus, uh, in Exodus 5, we see confrontation. Now, having circumcised his son, Moses goes into um, Egypt and he confronts Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, when he says, look, we'd like, to, we'd like to, the Hebrews to be able to go and worship, go out in the wilderness, Pharaoh says no. And then in verse 6, Pharaoh says to the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, you are no longer to give the people, the Jews, uh, straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks must remain the same. Don't reduce it because they're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go sacrifice to, to their God. Let the labor be heavier on them. Let them work more so that they will not pay attention to false words. These are slaves. Slavery will remain. That's the way it is. That's, that's Pharaoh, Right? And so then by the time you get to verse 15, the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, why do you deal with us this way? Saying there's no straw, gather your own straw, and, and yet you don't uh, reduce the quota. And Pharaoh says, here's why, because you're lazy. And so then the foreman of the sons of Israel saw they were in trouble. And when they left Pharaoh, verse 20 of Exodus 5, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. We wish you'd never come. And then Moses returned to the Lord, and he says, Lord, why did you bring harm to these people? Why did you ever send me ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name? He's done harm to these people. You've not delivered your people at all. Huh. So Moses gives us three instances of obedience in a row, right? He obeys God to go back to Egypt. He, he obeys God in circumcising his son. And now he obeys God in confronting the leader of Egypt. And the result of this is that the people he's trying to deliver suddenly face increased production quotas and beatings for failure to meet them. And there, so the result is that Moses sent to deliver people creates a situation whereby the people whom he's sent to deliver are now in deeper trouble than ever. The immediate fruit of Moses' obedience is that life gets harder for everyone in the room. Moses' response, total discouragement. Why did you send me? Why are you letting this happen? Ever since I've done what you've asked, things have only gotten worse. Does this sound familiar to anyone in the room ever? <laughs> you take the right step and move somewhere, and then your job lasts six months. You eat right and get cancer anyway. You take the right step in confessing in a relationship and the first thing that happens is a total erosion of trust. <laughs> you take the right step in having a hard conversation and instead of reconciliation, the chasm grows even wider. You take the right step in doing battle with an addiction and life gets terribly difficult in the short run and you're more tempted than ever uh, to indulge in self-medication. You take the right step in, 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 in Dallas, Texas, and you say, all we're going to do here is ask that somebody please pay attention. 
and then five policemen are dead. I mean, why even try? That's what Moses is saying here. Can I just stress this? Don't be surprised when obedience results in difficulty. Don't be surprised. Deliverance never comes easily, ever. (laughs) William Wilberforce, ending slavery in England, 23 years. MLK, jail, beatings, threats, and his vision still not fulfilled 50 years later, obviously. The same is true in the spiritual realm. Ephesians chapter 6, God is teaching us that we don't move toward freedom in Christ without that freedom being contested in profound ways. We don't move into our calling without that calling being contested. Why? Because if God's calling on you is that you shine as light in a dark world and Satan's desire is that darkness prevail, Satan will do everything he can to keep you in the dark. And your move toward light is a threat. When my wife and I moved to Los Angeles, the first year, terrible. When we moved to Bethany Community Church, the first year, terrible. You move toward intimacy in your marriage. And there are counselors in the room who will say, before you have hugs and candlelight and all that good stuff, there's a valley. Participating in anything having to do with making God's reign visible will be contested. Let's just say you decide to eat well. And here's what happens. If you decide, you know what, I'm done with living on M&M's and McDonald's or whatever, then your body needs to adapt. And I'll tell you, it's no picnic. And then suddenly once you, this is at least what I find in my own heart, when I decide I'm going to eat well, suddenly there's cake everywhere. <laughs> I just see the cake. I didn't, I didn't notice before, and now it's everywhere. But I work hard, I work out, and then I get on the scale, and, I, and I'm like this, what? Gained weight? How, like, oh. thanks! <laughs> right? And that's just, that's just diet. <laughs> Let alone gun violence. Racism, poverty, incarceration, drug addiction, meth labs, blocks from here, sexual slavery, a hundred yards from here. Spiritual progress always includes a battle, always. And knowing this doesn't make the battle go away, but it frees us from the lie that says, oh, things are difficult, I must not be in God's will. That's a lie. Often, a move of obedience will result in a very difficult life. The question should never be, listen, the question should never be, is this easy or hard? It's never the question. Is this going to give me outward success or not? Always the wrong question. Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught us through his own life there's one question to ask and that's what is God asking of me in the moment to contribute to God's reign on this planet? What is God asking of me? What is God asking of you? And in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's case, having been offered uh, an opportunity to stay in the United States in 1939 because Germany was melting down, as he wrestled with that in prayer, God clearly said to him, go back, go back. And he did go back. 
and all did not go well. <laughs> he was arrested and executed just before the end of the war. But Bonhoeffer says, and I quote now, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the power of the flesh. An unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. This is, this is not just Bonhoeffer, this is Ephesians 6. Look, we don't do battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, darkness, world forces of darkness in spiritual places. We are in a war. And the last thing we need to do is surrender and say, oh, you know, that's just the way it is. Let's just hope that next week isn't as bad as this one. Oh, no. More than pray, more than hope. Respond as God shows us a path forward. So, Moses goes back to God's office. This is how I say it anyway. It's my paraphrase totally. Moses returned to the Lord, verse 22. and said, Lord, why did you bring harm to this people? And do you hear, like he loves these people and he wants them free. And, and, and we're, he's tired of oppression. And we're tired of racism. We're tired of violence. And, and, and we're tired of not knowing the manner in which we're complicit. And, and we're tired of divisions. And we're tired of, of materialism and poverty and addiction. We're tired. And, we, and, we, and we're like this, God, we're trying and nothing's happening. That's what he says here. Ever since I came to Pharaoh, he's done harm to this people. And then in a very accusatory tone, because Moses has the intimacy with God to do this, this is what he says. And God, you have not delivered your people at all, he says. Not even a little bit. It's not even, a, there's not even hope. It's worse. This is where many fail right here. Because as soon as things get challenging, it's tempting to quit. Why? Well, I would argue that Francis Schaeffer, the prophet of the 60s and 70s in, in America, though he lived in Switzerland, he said this. He said, you know, slowly over time in America, we've made idols out of personal peace and safety. In other words, the, the lens through which we look at our lives is this. What's good for me? What will make me safe? What will keep me prosperous? And we, listen, if you make decisions based on that, rather than seeking first the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 6, you're on the sidelines. God's not inviting us to an easy life. The Apostle Paul, in contrast, says this, Philippians chapter 2. He says, look, I don't, I, I'm in prison right now, and I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to live or die, but I can tell you this. To live is Christ. In other words, if I, every day that God gives me breath, I will be in God's story. And if I die in the process of being in God's story, to die is gain. He who seeks to save his life, said Jesus, will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. But make no mistake, going forward will be costly and will include confrontation with our own flesh, with other people, with systems. There's a price to pay to be in God's story. And so Moses here cries out to God and he says, you have not delivered your people at all. Wow, what a text. He's discouraged. If you've been discouraged, this is a good text for you. Because then look at what God says next in chapter 6. And if it ended there, it would be terribly depressing, but it doesn't. Watch this. Moses at the end of, the end of his rope, as we say. He's frustrated. He's tired. He feels stuck as if obedience has not resulted in anything good or meaningful for him. And then God meets him with answers. And God, this, this is what God says. Look, I'm not just going to let them go. By the time I'm done here, he, Pharaoh, will drive my people out of the land and he's going to give them some gold along the way. <laughs> 
And what's critical to see here is that God says this, now you will see what I, the Lord, will do. That's what he says. Now you will see what I, the Lord, will do to Pharaoh. For under under compulsion, he will let them go. And then we see this. God is saying, in other words, I, look, you're at the end of your rope. There was the physical circumcision. Now there's, there's this kind of emotional, practical, tactical circumcision. You're out of plans. You're done. Nothing's worked. God, and this is what God says. Now, watch what will happen. There will be deliverance. God spoke further to Moses and said, Here, the deliverance is based on this. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, beginning verse 2 of Exodus 6. God says this. Here's why you can live with confidence knowing that shalom will come to our city. How, how do I know that? Why do I believe that? Here's why. Not because uh, if we elect the right mayor... And not because if we have 10 more programs. No, here's the basis of our hope. I am the Lord. That's what he says. And I appeared to Abraham and I established my covenant and I've heard the groaning and I've remembered my covenant and I've heard the cry, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be your God. You will be my people. And then the end of it is this. And you will now know in a way that you never knew before that I am Jehovah, the Lord, your God. I brought you out. I set you free. I will bring you all that I promised I would bring you. I will give it to you. I will give it to you and you will know that I'm the Lord. All of this is rooted, in other words, in God's character. Why why would we ever believe after a week like this and 200 years of initiatives that that anything will ever change? Why would we ever believe that? Here's why. Because Jehovah says, I'm the Lord. And I am for shalom. And, and, And I am calling you, Matthew chapter six, to be a peacemaker, like a, a shalom bringer in the midst of a violent, divided, fearful, uh, adversarial world. I'm calling you to be people of peace. Go and I will be for you what you cannot be on your own. I don't have a plan. <laughs> Only a promise. The promise is as we pray and listen and learn God will show us how to act. I'll just say this, the worst thing we could do, the worst thing we could do is throw up our arms and say, you know what? We have candidates on both sides that nobody wants. (laughs) And we have a week like this following Orlando, following Charleston, following Newton, and a and lawmakers who won't even talk to each other. It's easy to say this, done. I'm done. I'm done. Coffee, fir trees, a couple hikes, happy marriage, we'll call it good. This text and this week says to me, no, no, not done. We're light, friends, we're light. And it's time in this issue for us collectively to be light. I've been tempted in the past to quit. I told you about youth ministry in LA. It wasn't long after that disastrous retreat that my wife and I did a backpacking trip. And there were some sexual improprieties in the backpacking trip. And uh, 
I ended up disciplining two students. And then I got a call on Monday morning from the mom of one of the students who said, well, I'm going to sue you. Sue me. Yeah, invasion of privacy. I'm going to sue you. My son wants to do whatever he wants to do with uh, 10 women. That's his right. You're going to hear from my attorney by the end of the day. Oh, I'm going to sue the church too. So go tell a senior pastor. <coughs> Have the phone. And then, I, and then I'm like this immediately. This is my first thought. I love architecture. <laughs> I love architecture. It's not too late. Halfway through the program, you know, and then I quit, came to Seattle Pacific, did music, ministry. I can still get back in. I know there's a six-year window. I'm, look, I'm in. And so I wrote my letter, I literally, I wrote my letter of resignation. I said, dear senior pastor, you're getting a phone call pretty soon, you're going to be sued, and uh, I'm sorry about that, and I'm already being sued anyway, but I don't have any money, so they'll probably go after you, not me, and dun 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 And I, you know, psh, typewriter in 1983. And I walk in the senior pastor's office, and I hand it to him. I said, hey, well, here's what happened, and I told him the whole story. And he just laughed. He's a big guy, played football. He just laughed. Ha, ha, oh, 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 yeah, yeah. You're not quitting. He tears it up, throws it in the air. You know, watch this. And he calls that lady. Oh, you're going to sue us? Oh, yeah, well, watch this. We're going to sue you first. How's that? You're going to hear from our attorney by the end of the day. I'm going to sue you from the emotional distress of my youth pastor. He's melting down in my office as we speak. Blah, 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 right? <laughs> Boom, he hangs up the phone. Well, whatever. You can argue about that tactic. But, but I'll never forget and I'm grateful for this man in that moment. I'll never forget this. This is what he said. He said, this is when ministry begins right now. He says, you quit now? Yeah, you can quit. Go ahead, quit. But you'll never do anything meaningful as you're willing, Richard, to, and have the courage to press through conflict. Because the far side of conflict, there's light and shalom for these youth that God has called you to serve. Will you go? <laughs> so I stayed. And one of the last things I did before um, leaving Los Angeles was that the gal who was on that trip, who was also disciplined, uh, baptized her. Wow. I could have quit. And so can you. You can shrink your faith and make it personal. And all this stuff will keep going all around us or we collectively can be people of hope in our city. Collectively, addressing systems that are stealing shalom. There's Jebusites, friends. They're walking aurora, not people, systems. They're in the jungle. Enough, enough. We're gonna take some time, we don't normally do this. We're gonna take some time in groups of not more than five, please. Not less than three, please. We're going to pray. Would you pray for Minneapolis right now? For Baton Rouge right now? For Dallas right now? And for Bethany Community Church right now? Just pray. That's all I ask. And then we'll worship together as we close.